The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the best bits from the second half of 2022. We've got a few more clips from some of our fantastic guests we've had on over the past year. And I guess this is my last opportunity of 2022 to wish you all a very happy and prosperous 2023. I haven't lost my enthusiasm for podcasting yet, so don't worry. I will be back producing more episodes for the foreseeable future. And fingers crossed, hearing more and more of your brilliant success stories. And speaking of success stories... I have a few more generous donators to thank who have supported the show on the Buy Me A Coffee page. So huge thank you to Ben Crook, Kate Ryan and Thomas Lee who were hugely generous and donated over the festive period. I appreciate all the support you guys have given me which allows me to keep producing the show and helping more people pass the exam. But without further ado, let's get into the best bits from our second half of 2022. In our first clip, we welcome the fantastic Dr. Ian Wilkinson, consultant geriatrician at Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust with a special interest in movement disorders. He's also the fantastic host of the MDT, like the tea you drink, podcast, which you can find a link to in the show notes. In this clip, Ian talks us through the various differential diagnosis that you need to have at the tip of your tongue if you examine a patient with clear Parkinsonism in your paces. So welcome back. And after completing your examination, you're going to be expected to present your patient back to the examiners. And obviously, you're going to be discussing and presenting all of the signs we've talked uh, talked about so far. You're going to be talking about how you've been able to demonstrate bradykinesia, rigidity, and tremor, consistent with a diagnosis of Parkinsonism. However, it's going to be difficult for you to pin down an, an exact diagnosis which is why you say it's Parkinsonism rather than Parkinson's disease. But Ian, there are many different causes of Parkinsonism. So maybe you can just run through a few of those for us and and maybe we can discuss a little bit about the differentiating features between them. So to start with, I think when you've got someone with Parkinsonism, so that's a combination of two of the three of bradykinesia, increased tone and tremor, you need to think to yourself, 
does this person have normal levels of dopamine in their brain or not? And that's going to give you your two branches to your differentials. So if we take the idiopathic Parkinson's disease side, so we know that people with Parkinson's disease have reduced dopamine uh, in their brain. So that goes down that route. And so if you've got reduced dopamine in the brain, you can say, okay, well, what are the potential differentials within that, that cohort? So you've got idiopathic Parkinson's disease, the most common asymmetric, gradual, relatively slow progressive disease. Then got uh, the next common within that is Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia is one of the Parkinson plus disorders. So for Lewy body, it's Parkinsonism, something that looks like Parkinson's disease. And in my mind, the plus is there. So the pluses, the things that are different are people don't respond so well to treatment. It progresses faster and people have early onset cognitive impairment, but particularly with hallucinations and particularly quite scary hallucinations. People with Parkinson's disease that go on to develop a cognitive disorder often have hallucinations, but they're often not scary. Second, Parkinson plus is progressive supranuclear palsy. This is uh, typically symmetrical with tremor, but the tremor is less of a thing. These people tend to fall over very soon. So if someone's falling a couple of years after the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, that, that's a concern. They tend to respond poorly to levodopa again. And that's true for all the Parkinson pluses, actually. And they have a reduced vertical gaze. Uh, and what you're looking for is the speed of vertical gaze initially. Uh, and then the actual amount of movement reduces. And they have a much more rapid progression with survival being five to seven years after diagnosis versus Parkinson's disease, often sort of 15 to 20. The third Parkinson plus disorder is multi-systems atrophy. So these people have degenerate neurological changes with Parkinsonism. So type P, Parkinsonism is the most common uh, feature. But then they also have a combination of autonomic dysfunction and cerebellar dysfunction. And you can have different types. So you can have, as I said, MSA type P, where Parkinsonism is the most prominent. You can have MSA type C, where the cerebellar dysfunction is the most prominent. And then you can have pure autonomic failure, which is a bit rarer. Um, really quite difficult to treat and may have a relative paucity of Parkinsonism or, or cerebellar dysfunction. And then the final Parkinson's plus is cortical basal degeneration. And that tends to be a one-sided condition, often with quite early, quite rapid progression and quite early cognitive dysfunction. And it's described as an alien limb. So this side often just sort of, if it does move around at all, moves around sort of relatively on its own. And so that's the first branch of the differentials. So that is your Parkinsonism with dopamine deficiencies. Uh, Parkinsonism with normal dopamine levels. So then you are thinking about, does this person have vascular Parkinsonism? Have they got cerebral vascular disease affecting the basal ganglia, knocking out some of those neurons and therefore giving a Parkinsonian disorder? Secondly, would be drug-induced Parkinsonism. And then thirdly, you're then thinking about things that look like Parkinsonism, but are not actually. So that opens up essential tremor, dystonic tremor, and other causes of, of tremor, you know. So that's where you may want to think about normal pressure hydrocephalus, Wilson's basal ganglia strokes, that, that sort of thing. Uh, they're much more less, much less common, less likely to present in, in paces, I think. But that, that's sort of where your differential is going. So the first bit of your differential is, do I think they've got Parkinsonism? If I do... Do I think they've got a dopamine deficiency? Have they got Parkinson's disease or one of the Parkinson pluses? 
or have they got normal dopamine levels? Most likely thing then is vascular Parkinsonism or a drug-induced thing, or have they got something that looks a bit like Parkinsonism? And then you're thinking about uh, a central tremor or a dystonic tremor. Wow, fantastic. What a run-through of all the different differential diagnoses. And I would say that, like we said before, this is going to be a station where the examiners are going to expect you to do well. And having those extra diagnoses in your back pocket, the drug-induced, the normal pressure hydrocephalus, those are the things which are really going to make you shine beyond uh, your bog standard candidate. So yeah, really important. Next up, we have Dr. Omar Asgar, consultant cardiologist, who joined us to discuss his specialist topic of inherited cardiac conditions with the focus of this episode on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In this clip, Omar talks us through the differences between HCM and HOCAM. We mentioned hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and then also HOCAM or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And so what is the key difference between those two? Because I think it's something which a lot of people use interchangeably when actually as cardiologists, it's not, is it? It's not interchangeable, really. They do have different connotations. Exactly. And um, uh, so the obstructive form uh, is where there is obstruction of the flow of blood out, out the left ventricle. So characteristically in the LVOT, in the left ventricular outflow tract. Uh, and, and that gives rise to obstruction of, to varying degrees, and which also gives rise to symptoms. That tends to have a more aggressive and more malignant, uh, that's a more malignant form of the disease compared to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without uh, left ventricular tract obstruction. And where there is obstruction, it tends to be more challenging in terms of how we manage it and what treatment options there are. So what we do know now after, you know, with the advent of CMR imaging in particular, which has, has, has given us great insights into the condition, its natural history, and also the varying uh, phenotypes or, or forms of the condition, you can have your typical classical um, hokum, if you like, which is hyper asymmetric hypertrophy of the interventricular septum, in particular the basal antraceptum, uh, which characteristically causes the LV outflow tract obstruction. The other forms we see is mid-ventricular obstruction. We see concentric HCM. We see apical HCM. So, so there are different forms of this condition, and you can see, you know, asymmetric septal hypertrophy without LV outflow tract obstruction. So, obstruction is a key issue here as far as um, disease prognosis is concerned, certainly. And you mentioned there about genetics as well, and so it's important to mention that whilst HCM as an umbrella term can encompass cardiac hypertrophy of varying causes when we talk about genetic hcm that's a, a different entity and is a hereditary condition isn't it yeah and again it, it's an important point you highlight in that um, what we term genotype positive or genotype negative patients so for example in all of the large series of patients with a classical hcm phenotype who've undergone genetic testing you'll find that somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of these patients will be genotype positive i.e they have been found to carry a recognized mutation in one of the sarcomeric uh, genes so the vast majority of patients are in fact genotype negative and these are a heterogeneous group as well and it's still really a, a field of discovery and research that we we don't quite know uh, a great deal about but i imagine as as our discoveries in the field of genomics for sure and and generally within cardiovascular medicine we may find out a little bit about 
uh, about these conditions. So, so genotype's important. In some cases, it does confer an adverse prognosis, depending on, on, on the uh, mutation in question, but it certainly allows us then to screen family members. And the other important point about, um, uh, about the genetics of HCM is genotype-positive, phenotype-negative patients um, can still have cardiac events. So it's well recognized, certainly in, in some of the studies or case studies from the U.S., of collegiate students who've, who've died during a basketball game suddenly or whatever have not necessarily had, you know, huge obstruction or even, you know, significant hypertrophy, but have been genotype positive on perhaps on molecular autopsy thereafter. So genotype status is very important. And, and this is a condition that, um, you know, has variable penetrance. Yeah. Brilliant. So, we're going, that's quite a lot of detail for our audience. So I'm just going to headline it for those of us who aren't super interested in hokum like uh, myself and Omar. So the important headlines are it's an autosomal dominantly inherited condition. That's the most common form. And as Omar said, approximate prevalence of one in 200 to one in 500. And the genes, whilst there are, there are many, and as Omar says, it's a evolving field, the genes of interest, or the most common genes, are the MYH7 gene, which codes for the beta-myosin heavy chain, and the MYBPC3 gene, cardiomyosin binding protein C. Again, this is super detailed. Probably don't need to uh, memorize this bit in particular, but it will make you stand out from the bog standard candidate if this is the sort of stuff that comes up on the day. And so, Omar, if we lean in towards a more exam-focused scenario of a patient with possible HCM in, in a PACES-style scenario, I think the first thing which the candidates may find on entering the station is one thing which a lot of candidates are terrified of in PACES, which is a young cardiology patient, because it's not common to have cardiac problems when you're young. And so, Omar, the younger patient in a cardiology station what sort of other conditions might the candidates find in paces where the patient could be younger than your bog standard cardiology patient? So the classical one is going to be somebody with congenital heart disease. Uh, and that is a huge spectrum of disorders that you may see. And my experience, and I have selected candidates for paces exams in the past, have rather meanly uh, selected the most difficult ones when I was asked to do that. But um <laughs> That just goes to, to prove that uh, you can literally see anything. So um, I think a young patient, you should think of a normal patient, for example, somebody with no clinical signs necessarily, anyone with an inherited uh, cardiomyopathy or uh, channelopathy even who may not, not exhibit any um, clinical signs, any of the cardiomyopathies, including HCM, and, and I would say most commonly adult congenital heart disease because that's still more common and more prevalent now uh, than things like, uh, uh, you know, phenotypically severe HCM in a young patient. This next clip comes from still our only surgeon to feature on the podcast, Mr. Steve Lash, consultant ophthalmic surgeon. Here, Steve talks through the various findings to be found on fundoscopic examination of a patient with diabetic retinopathy, which you may find in a PACES station. Brilliant. So moving on from there onto our next diagnosis. Now, this is something which 
maybe apart from retinitis pigmentosa, which they seem to want to include very often in paces, is is something much more common, which you must see on at least yeah. a daily basis, Steve, which is diabetic retinopathy. So yes, diabetic retinopathy, absolutely um, learn about that. And, and the way I would explain it is there's really two things going on. There's leakage and blockage of vessels. So the vessels leak, and if they leak in the periphery, of course, the patient will notice nothing at all. But if they leak in the middle, so diabetic macular edema, that would be the most common cause of visual loss in patients with diabetes. Um, it's more common in type 1, and the longer you've had it, the more likely you are to get these problems. So, that, so that's leakage. Leakage, we used to treat with lasers through some dark arts, and we didn't quite know what we were doing and how much power was enough. And basically, people, we stopped them losing sight, but it wasn't particularly good. Now we have anti-VEGF injections, and they stop the leakage, and they're fantastic. So that's leakage. Blockage, on the other hand, causes the retina to become ischemic. And, the, and I say to patients, the SOS signal is not spelled SOS, it's spelled VEGF. So you get vascular endothelial growth factor, which also makes vessels leaky, but it makes them grow. And these vessels are, are friable and weak. They grow in the wrong planes, so they grow out of the retinal surface. They grow into the gel. They then bleed, so you get vitreous hemorrhage. And then after bleeding, they fibrose and they contract and that pulls the retina off. So the worst cases I deal with are the young patients with diabetes who've had difficult teenage years and their retinas are just being pulled off the wall of their eye by scar tissue. Lots of different ways of categorizing diabetic retinopathy. I quite like the mild, moderate and severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, where mild is mild, you know, um, little microaneurysms, little dot hemorrhages, exudates, you may get the odd cotton wool spot, which is a, a micro infarct, and it's on the surface layer of the retina. So the, the retina is actually 10 layers thick, uh, and you see what you look for, you look for what you know, and if you look carefully enough, you'll see that cotton wool spots cover the vessels which are, are deeper. Um, the exudates tend to be within the retinal layers, as are most of the hemorrhages. My, uh, so that's mild, moderate, more of the same and a bit worse. The, the other one, really important one, is the um, severe non-proliferative. So that's what you would call the pre-proliferative. And the useful rule there is the 4-2-1 rule. So big blot hemorrhages in four quadrants. So these are full thickness hemorrhages. They're bigger than the dot hemorrhages. Venous beading. So veins go like sausages when they pass through uh, ischemic retina in two quadrants. And then these things called IRMA, intraretinal microvascular anomalies in one. I struggle to teach my middle grades what IRMA are, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. So severe non-proliftive is something that's worth looking at. And then, of course, the proliftive, we have two categories. So NVD, new vessels on the disc, and NVE, new vessels elsewhere. Um, so new vessels on the disc, if you go to the disc, you'll see these vessels, and you won't be able to focus on all of them at the same time. So the important thing is, if you focus on the disc, some of them will be in focus. As you pull the focus back towards yourself, you'll see they stay in focus because they're sitting out of the disc. If you've got the luxury of binocular viewing systems like I have, you can see them in three-dimensional space coming forward. So it's very difficult for you guys, easy for me. And then, of course, new vessels elsewhere. So it's worth when you do your journey around the eyes to follow vessels out and then follow another vessel back. And they tend to grow between the perfused and non-perfused areas. And again, they grow out into the retina. Of course, the other classic, which I guess would be a good curveball for RP, uh, would be PRP, so laser scars. Um, so that would be a good one for them to test you. These are man-made. They're pigmented when they've been there a while. They're usually well-spaced. 
So we now have these grid lasers, um, which causes very fantastically um, perfect pattern of burns, whereas you used to see just burns everywhere. They form grids, so they're easy to spot. And, if, and they're usually all the way around the back of the eye. So we don't usually grid an area of the retina. It's full PRP or nothing. So you'll see them all the way around the back of the eye. And of course, people with PRP may well have field defects. And if they've had PRP in both eyes, then they may have absolute field defects with both eyes open and, and not be able to drive. So again, spacing is important. So hopefully the, the, the defects don't overlap in each eye. Other things for diabetes would be regular injections and then surgery for them. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess one of the things which we've touched on for our other our other diagnoses, which may be slightly more difficult with diabetes, is the exact pattern of, of visual loss. So is there a conventional pattern that you see of visual loss in these patients? Or, or again, is it a case of where the retinopathy is affecting? So, the, yeah, the most common would just be blurred vision. So diabetic macular edema, so your central vision is knocked off. Um, so the vision is maybe halfway down the chart, maybe a bit worse. Um, peripheral visual loss, you may get peripheral visual loss with a bleed in the eye uh, initially, but then it all becomes murky, so they lose all vision. It becomes very, very misty. In terms of hemianopic type defects or glaucomatous type defects, they don't they just don't present with that. It's just generally blurred vision or no vision. I mean, even with the laser, even with laser all around the back of the eye, they've lost maybe 50% of their peripheral field. They will not be aware with one eye open that they've lost vision. I mean, our eyes compensate so much. It's incredible. Yeah, brilliant. And and just again, to touch on something which you may find in, in taking a history from these patients in, in a station five type scenario, you know, these patients will probably tell you they're diabetic and it's important to ask how well controlled that is. Would you, would you say as well, it's often made worse by the other conventional cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure, smoking, high, high cholesterol? Yeah, smoking for sure is a real big issue. I think overall you're three times more likely to go blind, lose your sight if you smoke. The other really interesting thing about smokers I've, I've come across over the years is that they have this silent retinopathy. So almost nothing looks like it's happening and all hell is breaking loose. You do a fluorescing and they've got massive dropout. So there's something of smoking that works very nicely with diabetes to maximally destroy your blood circulations. Next up, I was joined by Dr. Ravathi Whitaker-Jane, affectionately known as RJ, who is a renal consultant to discuss the common abdominal examination station of polycystic kidney disease. RJ was kind enough to give up some more of her time and we discussed how you can best structure your presentation of a patient who you suspect may be a case of polycystic kidney disease. And welcome back to this episode on polycystic kidney disease and so far we've covered the likely lead in some of the basics of the condition and all the way through our examination. But now we're coming to the presentation side of the station. The first thing I would say is, obviously you have to present the signs which you found, which uh, indicates you that this patient has polycystic kidney disease. So that's everything that we've discussed so far. The fullness in the flanks, the blottable kidneys, any other palpable organs in the abdomen. But RJ, how would you go about presenting these patients? The first thing obviously being trying to describe the signs which lead you to that as a diagnosis. So obviously, in a station like, th like this, um, the kind of lead-in statement to your presentation can be quite 
complex. So I would frame this in two ways. And before you open your mouth, think about whether you think this patient has polycystic kidney disease as well and just has CKD, or whether this is a patient who has end-stage kidney disease secondary to polycystic kidney disease and what form of renal replacement therapy they're on. So end stage on hemodialysis, either via line or a Fischler, or end stage with a functioning transplant, or end stage on peritoneal dialysis. So if you have a patient who has nothing other than blottable kidneys, your most likely diagnosis is going to be this patient has um, chronic kidney disease due to polycystic kidney disease as evidenced by, I would like to confirm my diagnosis with the differential diagnosis for blottable kidneys, essentially. If you have a patient who has all the other signs, that's when you need to think a little bit about why you think this patient has end-stage disease and make sure you're um, discussing that in a system- systematic manner. Now, I'd like to say it'd be nicer for you to have the um, well patient with blottable kidneys because that's a much simpler presentation but give yourself again that time to collect your thoughts before you say anything yeah absolutely and as well as mentioning whether or not they've had or they have evidence of uh, real replacement the other thing to mention as we discussed is evidence of a nephrectomy as well as a transplant scar so you know it, it's about taking in these signs in such a rapid fashion which i think is one of the key skills in paces is taking in so many signs in such a short space of time holding them in your mind before then telling them back to the examiner so just make sure that you are mentioning every single sign as you go through your presentation and the systematic presentation of a patient with end-stage renal failure is pretty much what we went through it in great detail with jim moriarty in our last uh, episode rj so we're not going to go through everything to do with that but I'll just briefly go through the headlines or or each of each significant point of that presentation so so what we said on that occasion was state the patient has end-stage renal failure and the likely cause listing the preferred differential diagnosis of in this case polycystic kidney disease but also mention the differentials going on from there their current form of renal replacement as we've mentioned which may be a, a functioning transplant a fistula peritoneal dialysis other forms of uh, long, long-term venous access, your arguments for the transplant functioning or not, uh, if it's not functioning, what renal replacement do they have at the moment? And then lastly, indications as to what immunosuppressive therapy they may be on, which we haven't touched on too much in this episode. And that's partly because patients with polycystic kidney disease, unless they have a transplant, aren't typically immunosuppressed to control the condition. All that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the differential diagnosis of renal enlargement. And this is something which I think examiners would expect you to be able to come out with if you had a station like this in the exam. So RJ, if we can cover each in turn, it's going to have one of one or two of these patients where they may have unilateral renal enlargement or bilateral renal enlargement. So maybe we can cover each of those in turn. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of um, classifying it um, uh, bilateral Um, versus unilateral so you know keep things simple if you do any reading on this you're going to get um, very quickly overwhelmed uh, with the causes of bilateral cystic renal disease as we've mentioned it's genetically complex and there are um, various other conditions out there that you may not have heard of so um, kind of keep it simple so on top of your differential it's going to be um, ADPKD then go for your other although these are rare, your other 
um, cystic renal diseases that come up in examinations. So tuberous sclerosis, von Hippel-Lindau, amyloidosis, bilateral hydronephrosis, and bilateral renal cell carcinoma. Now, I put those in that order because actually I think it's very unlikely that they're going to bring a patient to the exam who's got bilateral renal cell carcinoma or um, bilateral obstruction. But, you know, they are potential causes in clinically of bilateral renal enlargement. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we haven't specifically mentioned about von Hippel-Lindau or tuberous sclerosis. And uh, probably because talking about those conditions warrants a whole episode in and of themselves. So we're not going to cover those in excruciating detail today. But uh, listeners, I'm sure we will cover them uh, in, at some point in this series of podcasts. So that's bilateral renal enlargement. So what about unilateral renal enlargement, RJ? So um, in terms of unilateral renal enlargement, again, is this just um, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease in a patient that's had an nephrectomy? If you've seen that nephrectomy scar, then, you know, that's very likely and I think the most likely uh, cause. It could then be renal carcinoma. So a patient who's had renal carcinoma and a nephrectomy. So, you know, has that patient got recurrent disease? So I think that, again, could be at the top of your differential diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, unilateral hydronephrosis. Um, you'll see in some textbooks, simple renal cysts. I think it's very unlikely, you know, by the nature of simple cystic diseases that they're not usually blottable. So I would stay away from that in your diagnosis, uh, differential diagnosis. Um, so I, I think they're your main ones. There is one I'm going to mention um, in the bilateral cause, um, which is um, AD HNF one beta, which um, is another renal um, diagnosis, um, and it's an auto- listeners. You can't see this, but I just raised my eyebrows at RJ. <laughs> um, so autosomal dominant. Um, uh, it's another autosomal dominant cystic disease um, associated with renal impairment but also modi um and so if you've got a patient who's you know got a diabetic sign you really want to go in there for some impressive points and you know you've seen the signs of diabetes uh kind of check of capillary blood glucose on the fingertips and they've got bilateral cystic kidneys and you know having ad hnf1 beta in the in, the, in your back pocket's not a bad one but you know minutiae but from a, a renal specialist point of view is an important cause of cystic renal disease and Ajay, this might be unfair. HNF1 beta stands for... <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Definitely something to have in your back pocket. Definitely don't... If you bring that out first, you're, you're a bold paces candidate. Okay. Um, moving on to the investigations of this patient. So you've presented the patient, you've presented your differential diagnosis, and you should go straight into your investigation. So as always, we start with our simple bedside investigations. So RJ, what comprises our bedside investigations for these patients? Uh, so absolutely. First, you know, as a nephrologist, we want a blood pressure, uh, particularly in these patients with polycystic kidney disease. They present early with hypertension um, and it's an important prognostic factor. So um, hypertension, you want to check a blood pressure. And then our second most, well, probably our favourite generally is, it, is urine dip um, we want to know what's in that urine um, and you know no one's going to kind of raise their eyebrows if you say you want to send that urine dip for an MSU or cytology but you know I think they're clinically probably less, less relevant so if you're going to remember to which would be your blood pressure and your 
urinalysis. Excellent. And then moving on to blood tests, RJ. So, uh, you know, um, you want to be doing quite clearly, the first thing to say is you want to check their excretory renal function. So you're going to check their um, U's and E's. Um, although this is not a blood test, and maybe you could put this in your bedside test, is you're probably going to check the whether the patient has proteinuria. So you're going to send it to the lab for an ACR, an albumin-creatinine ratio. Again, it's an important um, prognostic factor, whether the patient has proteinuria. You're going to check the full blood count, either for renal anemia or polycythemia. Um, you're going to check for renal bone disease by checking their bone profile or LFTs and, um, you know, if the patient has abnormal excretory function, perhaps a PTH. So um, I think they're your main ones. Now, you may want to discuss genetic testing. It depends where you want your um, exam questions to go, but um, that is something clearly that's important in a patient who doesn't have a family history of cystic kidney disease. If your leading was this patient has a family history of renal disease, then perhaps that isn't key in your tests. But if it, if not, then I would certainly include that. Yeah, absolutely. And and as RJ says, if you're going to start mentioning things like genetic testing, you've got to think the next obvious question for the examiner to ask you is what genetic tests are you going to send? So don't chase yourself into a into a dead end by saying you would do things which then you don't have the uh, knowledge to to back up it can also work in your favor you know if you if you memorize the genetic testing like the back of your hand and you absolutely know it you know you can go down that route and then you can wow the examiners with all your knowledge on the genetic test for uh, polycystic kidney disease but just be aware that if if you're not willing to learn the ins and outs of the genetics then you may want to avoid mentioning that Whilst it's important, you may want to avoid that if you don't want to be chased into a dark alley. Okay, and we touched on the imaging side of things slightly when we talked about the diagnosis, but maybe we could just come back to the, uh, these as they're pretty critical to, to actually diagnosing the, the case, Sarge. Absolutely. So I think, you know, here kind of showing that you have some knowledge it isn't a bad thing because the questions can't be too complex, but saying you'd like to ask, take a history and ask the patient about any family history of end-stage renal disease or polycystic kidney disease. And if the patient has a positive family history, then your first line investigation is going to be an ultrasound. You know, that's a, a simple, easy bit of knowledge that I think, you know, would sound relatively impressive to a non-renal uh, physician. Um, and then I'd, uh, you know, in the case where a patient doesn't have a known family history, you may look to do other um, imaging, including CT or MRI. Now, it wouldn't be wrong to do a CT or MRI in a patient with um, a family history of renal disease because it does have um, implications in terms of information for treatment of their uh, polycystic kidney disease, which we'll talk a, li a little bit about later. Fantastic. I guess the last thing is we always come to special tests at the end of the uh, investigations. Is there anything uh, quite specific for these types of patients? I guess a renal biopsy probably isn't indicated if it's a mainly imaging-based diagnosis. No, I think it would be um, unfortunate if we performed a <laughs> you, biopsy in a patient with polycystic kidney disease, <laughs> unless there was another indication, you know, um, like a suspicious mass so no really the the diagnosis for polycystic kidney disease will be imaging plus or minus genetic testing in this next clip 
I discussed mitral regurgitation with our resident echocardiography guru, Dr. Raj Sharma, consultant cardiologist from St. George's Hospital in London. I posed Raj a quite tricky question pertaining to reporting your findings to pin down exactly what to say regarding the murmur you've just heard on examination. Raj, and I want to ask, ask you a question from the perspective of a, a hypothetical listener. A lot of people struggle with murmurs, understandably. And like you say, they often hear murmurs all over the chest. They, they can say, there's a systolic murmur all over the chest. Are there any hard, sensitive signs or specific, more specific signs which will differentiate between the two most common murmurs which you'll see, which is going to be aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation? Firstly, they can be similar. So please don't, you know, they can be similar, particularly if you're not um, that experienced. So I think the key with murmurs, even at paces, is that, as you quite rightly said, you at least are able to link a pathology to the murmur. It's when you start saying aortic regurgitation is in systole, I'm afraid we won't spend too long with you. So even with aortic stenosis, now aortic stenosis, the murmur is completely different, to be fair. It is in systole, but remember, this is now blood struggling to come out during the systolic cycle. So the murmur is much harsher. It's what we call crescendo decrescendo. So it is very soft at the beginning, gets louder and gets softer. With, with mitral regurgitation, what you find is the murmur is either the same sound throughout, same intensity, in which case it's pan-systolic, and the late systolic murmurs, you literally don't hear anything after the first sound. So, so, it, so what I'm trying to say is it's really the heart sounds that give it away. If you've got your first two sounds there and you've blocked out everything else, you then, I, I still now, I close my eyes and go, right, where am I hearing this? I'm hearing it in very early in systole. That's likely to be aortic stenosis. If it's in mid to late, it is not. The, the other one that is common is tricuspid regurgitation, which produces exactly the same murmur as mitral regurgitation. But the difference is it's loudest in inspiration, while the mitral is loudest in expiration. So they're, they're the two things I look for. So if I hear a systolic murmur, then it's going to be tricuspid regurgitation, aortic stenosis, and mitral regurgitation. If it's loudest in expiration, I'm left with two causes as far as paces are concerned. There are other causes, um, aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. Then it's difficult. Um, and then you do rely on some of your other signs as well. So with aortic stenosis, you don't get a palpable thrill. You don't get a thrusting displaced apex beat. You get a heaving apex beat, slightly different feel that's usually not displaced. It's quite difficult for the heart to enlarge with aortic stenosis until your end stage. The pulse is different. I wouldn't expect atrial fibrillation. And actually, for many patients, the pulse is slow rising with aortic stenosis. So, so you build that picture up and you add it to the murmur. But if ultimately you've not got anything to distinguish, there is really no harm in saying I cannot distinguish between the two and allow the examiner to slightly probe you for things that you may have found elsewhere that may have helped. So that would be my best answer for that. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's something which a lot of people at least have asked me that it's just, you know, there's an abnormal sound. How do you, how do you do, uh, differentiate it? But yeah, great, great yeah. advice. And then I guess to finish off, one thing which is always recommended in a cardiology station, which you'd be expected to mention in your presentation, is listening to the lung bases for 
Bibasal crepitation suggestive of decompensated heart failure, pulmonary edema. While you've sat them forward, sacral edema for the same reason, and then moving to the legs uh, and, and assessing for pedal edema. And then you're you're pretty much yeah. at, at the end. Is there anything else you think is worthy of mentioning after your initial auscultation? Because that end of the examination is really almost your time buying stage of the examination. If there's anything you want to go back to, you've got to do it after the auscultation because I've definitely heard stories of examiners, you know, you finished even 20, 30 seconds early. They'll ask whether you want to go straight into the uh, the spiel, the presentation, and then you've lost your opportunity to double check anything you might be hesitant on. I mean, I, I, I'm a great fan of taking your time after the auscultation, even before it. So don't rush in, stare at the patient, look at them as, 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 as we've said, take your time going around. Don't, don't forget blood pressure. That could be useful sometimes. And once you've finished and you're looking, even when you're looking for the edema, start building in your mind what you think you found and what you're going to present and how you're going to present it. And what I always say to people, and I've examined on paces many times, is don't at the point that you're doing this think you have to give the diagnosis straight away. Build the picture in your mind, give a differential, and then then say which one you think it is and why. And that 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 would be my best advice. I just feel that people are always looking. I mean, it's it's human reaction. They're looking for the diagnosis straight away, and and just sometimes turns examiners off. So, so I think no, use that thirty seconds. It's really worthwhile. Don't be afraid to go back and listen if you're not sure of what am I going to tell them that I found. Am I just going to describe everything and give a differential? And then after that, give them the most likely diagnosis. Or am I just going to tell them what I found because I'm going a bit blank and I just can't quite work it out? So that would be my way of doing it. I like differential diagnoses all the time. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying my two most likely differential diagnoses are aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. Um, You will then be probed on the murmur more, probably. And you would describe, of course, aortic stenosis as ejection systolic. That means it's crescendo, decrescendo, and they'll ask you whether or not you feel it's that. And with mitral regurgitation, it's usually pan-systolic or mid to late systolic, which is just a crescendo murmur. Now, that's quite difficult, I think, to differentiate if you're not a cardiologist, to be frank with you. Um, so, so, so I would strongly advise people not to be too afraid to put those two forward and if, if you feel comfortable because you've got other signs, atrial fibrillation, thrusting displaced, then plump at mitral regurgitation. But don't get so tongue-tied that you think you've got to give one name, and that's where the whole presentation often falls apart. Don't be prepared to stick and present in a full way. It, it, it gets you a lot more marks than you think. And for our last clip, we've certainly saved the best till last when I invited back Dr. Ajay Verma, consultant gastroenterologist at Kettering General Hospital. And we discussed calling gastro out of hours, particularly relating to GI bleeds and emergency endoscopy. Ajay was hugely generous with his time and gave his best tips on preparing to have that difficult conversation. And so one question which I've always wanted to ask is, if we pick up the phone to ring the gastro consultants on call or the on-call endoscopist overnight, what are the sorts of things which you want to hear from us? What what are the things which you think are most important for us to let you know about? So the first thing is some 
Now, I use this word carefully because I don't want it to come across as pompous or difficult, but it's just a bit of some of the etiquette of things. And, and, and when I explain it, it'll make a bit more sense. So I think if you're going to call the gastroenterologist on call, and, and this is nothing about fear or whatever, you, you basically want to get a story over concisely and get a decision on what happened. So it, it's like the usual things, being prepared. So having your information in front of you, logged onto the systems you want to look at, um, and I would usually say it should be probably the registrar who calls. And, and that's not a, a slight on anyone else. It's just you're having a high-level discussion about the care of a patient who's in desperate need of, of treatment. You, you wouldn't be calling unless there was a, a real concern there. So you basically want the kind of the most experienced person involved in that care to call. So a registrar with all the stuff ready, there's nothing more frustrating. You know, and, and you know this as well as the reg, you know, someone calls you and refers to you and you go, okay, so what the bloods? And they'll go, oh yeah, just give me a minute. I'm just going to log on. Um, I, I don't have the ops with me. Just give me a second. So it, that's usual thing. There's nothing, anything extra. And I would, I've got to say most gastroenterologists are very down to earth. We have to be uh, with the nature of the conditions we manage with. So I'm hoping you don't get too much grief from calling the, the gastroenterologist on call at night. So it's just being prepared, having the information ready. And typically I would suggest it's the registrar that does it. I think that's good practice. Yeah. And so let's say you, you know, you introduce yourself as the, as the reg or maybe the acting registrar on call and you establish that we need, we need to have a discussion about maybe an escalation of care or asking you to come in. What are the key facts and figures about the case in question, which is going to make the yes. biggest, which is going to make the yeah. biggest difference to your decision as to whether or not you need to come in and, and do an emergency endoscopy. So I think what's helpful here um, Sam, is to give you a little bit of context on some of the things we consider before we decide to come in and scope. Okay. So, because um, there, there is this kind of running joke and, and you know, which, which is absolutely right, you know, uh, you ask a gastroenterologist to scope and they're either too sick to be scoped or if they're, they're kind of stable enough, they can be scoped in the morning. And people go, well, the answer is always no then, isn't it? And the answer isn't always no, but the, the rationale behind that is I, I actually live not too far from the hospital. So for me, if I need to come in, it's not no big hardship in terms of distance or travel or anything like that. But for me to scope someone, uh, you know, it's not a single person effort. You're generally talking about uh, two endoscopy nurses coming in as well, opening up a unit, uh, the equipment involved. So the scopes aren't just ready. They have to be prepared, make sure they're ready, all the equipment attached you know, and the venue of where that's done, is that done in the endoscopy department? Is that done in theatre, which often is overnight? Is it done in the intensive care unit? We, we often take all the equipment to the intensive care unit. Usually for the out-of-hours bleeds, you know, they're, they're really sick. So you're talking about anaesthetic support, whether the patient's going to be tubed. And then you've got other concepts to look at in terms of, is theatre busy? You know, if, if someone needs a bleed doing... And then you call theatre and they're doing an emergency middle of the night laparotomy. You know, there's only one emergency theatre usually in most hospitals staffed. So those are the kind of things we have to balance out. And then there's also things about timings. So, for instance, um, even though we're on call overnight, being called at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning about a bleed, unless it's absolutely, you know, there's an extremist here, I would suggest that can wait. And the reason why is by the time we come in and get all the equipment ready and get the patient into theatre and all the treatments being given, it'll be eight o'clock in the morning. And our endoscopy unit opens at eight o'clock in the morning. So, you know, it's often that type of thing can wait. So the kind of critical times to think about is, so if it's in the evening up to kind of 1, 2 a.m., then 
that's where we, we need to know. As it gets more later in the day, by the time you're given your uh, initial resuscitation and treatment, it, it, it's kind of going to be the morning anyway. So that's one thing to think of. The other thing as well is a bit like surgery and, and CPOD uh, requirements. You know, we really don't want to be scoping in the middle of the night unless it's absolutely critical just because of human nature. You know, doing things with tired staff in the middle of the night increases the risk for the patient. So just like a surgery, they don't want to do an operation unless it's life-saving. It's the same with us. So we will generally, we are actively trying to deflect as many as we can into the daytime, just because that's where all the strength is, all your surgical support is, all your radiological support is, all your intensivist support is, you know, more stuff around. So that's the other thing to think about. So those are some of the things that occur in our head. You've got to remember that most customers to do the overnight have uh, got a full day of things tomorrow as well. Now, People will quite cynically say to you, oh, yes, you know, that doesn't matter. You get paid to be on call overnight, stop you whinging and come in and do that. But actually, I always counter back. I say, yeah, but, you know, you work in a hospital. You know that if I'm on call for MAU and I'm doing GI bleeds as well, then if I come in and I'm in all night, I'm not going to do the MAU round in the morning. And, and that has an impact on trust, you know, that kind of flow and admissions and the sick patients then. So there's a lot of things we have to balance out. So that's the, the kind of ethos of what we're trying to do, really. The, the thing that will make us come in definitely are kind of liver bleeds, um, liver-associated GI bleeding. So you're talking about variceal bleeds, uh, and those are the ones that are high risk and, and usually need intervention. So those are the ones we will. For kind of peptic ulcer bleeding, we don't typically do them overnight because actually the, the kind of interventions around them are slightly different, and I can explain a bit more about that. The other thing to remember as well, and thankfully most physicians get it, but non-physicians don't get it, and, and that's not me criticizing them, is this isn't like a trauma. This isn't someone's chopped their leg off, there's blood squirting from an artery, and if you don't go to theater and stop that bleeding, that patient's going to die. When we are scoping, we're not trying to stop a bleed. I know that sounds an odd thing, but actually we don't always go in. We don't often go in, and there's an active squirting vessel. And you've got to remember, these are enclosed spaces. You know, It's not a big open space outside the body. It's an enclosed organ inside the body. So if there's active, active bleeding and blood accumulating, you can't see anything. So you've got to remember that when someone has a bleed, typically what happens is they stop bleeding. And then what we're trying to do with our treatments, including endoscopic intervention, is to reduce the risk of re-bleeding. And in GI bleed, if the first bleed doesn't kill you, the re-bleed has got a very high mortality. So when you're asking us about a bleed, often the understanding is that, oh, yeah, can you come in and stop this bleeding? And you go, the bleeding's probably stopped. Unless their blood pressure's caning it down, the bleeding's probably stopped. And the question is, what's the balance of risk and benefits of us adding endoscopic treatment to medical treatment in that gap against the risk of re-bleeding? And, and that's why for variceal bleeds, the risk of re-bleeding is very high. So that's why we'll often go in and, and do some banding or give some treatment. For peptic ulcer bleeding, the re-bleed risk is actually lower than for liver bleeding and, and some of the interventions we can we can do, medical management as opposed to endoscopic uh, intervention um, is often easier. So that's what's in my head immediately as a baseline. That's my baseline encyclopedic thought process that runs through my head when someone calls overnight. And trying to understand that will actually help then you as the reg on call to understand what will make us come in and what won't. So what will make me come in, obviously, is the variceal bleed. Now, 
What's really important is the resuscitation. It's the, you know, for all medical emergencies, it is the resuscitation that is the, the key thing. You know, if someone's got a huge PE, you know, people will go, well, we need a thrombolyzer, embolyzer, or, or all the bits and pieces. But you're actually not going to do it if the patient's, you know, just about to kind of arrest on you, you know, doesn't have a blood pressure. And it's exactly the same with, with GI bleeding. It, it's not an intervention to stop bleeding and, and and kind of rescue something we're not kind of superheroes in that way it is that re-bleed aspect and if a patient is uh, in extremis due to hypotension or due to severe anemia or due, due to coagulopathy you know that needs to be corrected our, our never event in endoscopy is a patient dying on the table if a patient dies on an endoscopy table either during the procedure pre-procedure post-procedure in that department that is a failure of assessment and management. I've been scoping for years, Sam, and I think I've not had a patient die on me on the table. And, and you know, in our department, we scope thousands of patients a year. We get less than, than one or two per year that die associated with the endoscopy department. So it is it is worth remembering that. And for the virus seal bleed, the resuscitation is more critical initially. So most virus seal bleeding is driven by sepsis. So that's why we ask for antibiotics. Uh, the turley pressing reduces the splanchnic pressure, so that reduces the kind of burden of, of, of the pressure in the in the kind of varices to, to reduce the risk of bleeding. Uh, and then it's that endoscopic intervention of banding that, that will kind of give the patient the best, best chance. And that's for esophageal varices. Gastric varices is very difficult. The only thing we can do for those is really inject either thrombin or glue into the gastric varix. It's not something you can really do overnight and you need an empty stomach to do that. You can't really, you know, blood squirting from gastric varix. It's not amenable to treatment in the, that acute setting. For peptic ulcers, again, it's challenging. It has to stop bleeding. And then there's got to be a lesion that's treatable. So we can use adrenaline, we can use heat, we can use clips. So if there's visible vessels and stuff like that. But actually bleeding the duodenum is really difficult to access. The duodenum is a very odd shape. And actually getting endoscopic access to that area is actually really challenging. So we've, we've looked at it in our own data. Peptic ulcers, we very rarely come in overnight, very rarely. But for variceal bleed, you know, if someone's had a massive variceal bleed, they've been resuscitated and they're at risk, we will come in and do those. So there we have it, listeners, the end of our best bits of 2022. But don't worry, I will be back creating as many podcasts as I possibly can in 2023 and hopefully helping many more of you to pass paces. And as I say, pretty much every week, If you've listened to the podcast and found it helpful, please do give us a shout either on our Twitter page, that's at PrePaces Podcast. You can also support the show by liking the show, leaving a review or subscribing on whichever podcast platform you use. And finally, as I've gone on about many times on the show, if you want to directly support the show with a pay what you can donation, you can do that over at buymeacoffee.com slash PrePaces Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. So here's to you and the end of 2022. We'll see you next time in 2023 right here on the Pre-Paces podcast.